Welcome to Machine Learning. Well, this week's recap. Um, doing a lot of thought about uh, Python programming and uh, looking at A-B testing. And one of the things I found interesting about A-B testing is trying to find hidden trend. So anomalies and uh, ways to do that. So what they're looking for is uh, you take the different data and look at uh, events or you know like let's say for example you're a, a software company and you're uh, or telecom and uh, you've released out um, a new product or a new operating system version and uh, you see a, a drop in the number of subscribers so the new subscribers so then um, you know, without knowing maybe the market trends or or uh, reviews, maybe they, there was a couple of negative reviews uh, or more. You know, and uh, there's some concern about the new um, operating system. So that that in, is impacting the uh, adoption of the, the new phones. So there's there's could be kind of a drop off. Anyway, uh, so what you want to do is see if, if there really was, uh, you know, if there's a correlation to maybe a device or a particular timing of event. So you're looking at these events and, and, uh, and if you're seeing like, a, you know, some deviation in, in, the, in the trend, then uh, you're wanting to analyze that closer to understand what's going on. So maybe in, in those cases, you, you announce that, uh, that you're aware of these particular uh, problems in the OS and that, uh, and that uh, uh, to stay tuned for uh, updates on the software. I know that uh, when I've worked with other software packages, um, a lot of times they'll have like a message board or something like that. And... Um, and uh, and then they'll encourage you to check in on that. So they'll, either you post the, the bug in there and, and then they start working on it and then they give reports when they, they get the, the bug fixed. And then uh, you can also download patches. So they might announce that, you know, a patch has been released. And so, you know, responsiveness to the problem um, can also mitigate some of the uh, reduction in, in adoption. Well, so there's uh, um, the, and one of the techniques that they do is uh, smoothing algorithms on curves. Uh, we haven't talked a lot about smoothing algorithms, but they're um, fairly interesting. It does take a little bit of knowledge uh, to understand how to do a smoothing algorithm. So. Okay, so what you do is uh, smoothing algorithms are based on uh, a window. Okay, so you're looking at a particular column or columns, and uh, and you're uh, you can apply uh, a a um, you can apply like a, a mean function to that those that window. So, for example, let's say you have a rolling 
uh, average on the data frame and you want to create a, a rolling uh, average and so what that does is it takes it takes uh, from your your current row that you're on um, you you would go back a certain number of window a uh, certain number of rows and that was creates what they call a window so that would uh, be things like uh, let's say you go um, back uh, three units okay three rows so that would be that would mean that you would go back um, three rows and then take an average well now if you do a group by it's really challenging but if you stay in the data frame it's not too bad so you use the ilog um, API uh, extension on or the uh, uh, interface to access uh, three rows back and uh, um, so then that would that would then take you back to uh, uh, and, and so that you okay so you do iloc and then colon comma and then the column offset so it'd be zero one two three four etc where and then what you're looking for is a numerical column because you want to do the average against the numerical column and then um, that would then create a new column for the moving average and the reason why you do the moving averages is to look for trend so like you, you know you can set seven day let's say if you have a time series and you want to you want to uh, look at a seven day moving average you can see how how the trend is uh, uh, shifting through and 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 give you kind of a direction that the data is moving um, or you could go to a 14-day moving average or a 30-day moving average. And those then would give you better uh, visibility into the trending uh, that's occurring. Now, what, you, what happens is you may want uh, to, to create a smoothing algorithm. So you can, use, uh, you can use the rolling to create a smoothing algorithm. Now, they also have an exponential uh, function EWH, e I believe, or EWM, maybe it's EWM. And uh, what that does is the most recent data is given more weight. So it, uh, in your smoothing algorithm, uh, the more recent the data in, in the window frame is given more weight. So you have rolling, you have EWM, can be used to, to do some uh, uh, smoothing of the curve. And that gives you kind of, takes out some of the noise, because noise is very, can get very disruptive. It's hard to uh, interpret data when there's lots of noise. So by smoothing it out, um, you can get, you can get uh, better results sometimes. And it just, but what it does is it highlights the areas where there's big change. And uh, so, uh, we, 
um, look at that uh, data that way. Um, and, you know, most of the places where A-B testing has been used is in the area of web design. Like, uh, when a customer wants to change their their web page and they want to see how that might impact uh, their customer base. Uh, they look at click-through rates and and they're looking at uh, you know how placement of different things uh, is helping the user navigate through the website. And so they let's say if you have two or, or items, you you can test that. You can test against one group of users in real time uh, versus another group and then use that those results to make a prediction on which uh, which group uh, which which web page had the better results so you're constantly testing uh, a b testing is constant testing of the interfaces to see you know which interface might be better and uh, that's a you know that's a really nice feature to uh, you know to to be thinking about and uh, working on. Now, in the area that um, we were looking at in DataCap was on conversion rates. So we we're looking at uh, subscriptions where A/B testing was. Use. So, depending on the offer of the that the uh, company was making, uh, would determine the subscription conversion rate. So, in the in the case where we're looking at we're looking at existing customers, and we're looking to see uh, you know, based on lapsed time that their subscription expired, uh, what their conversion rates were. So those are uh, things that uh, uh, could be calculated into conversion rate, and then that can be uh, converted into gained revenue or lost revenue. So if they don't convert uh, in the in the first week, uh, then how was that? How does that impact in the second week? Uh, how fast is their conversion rate drop off? And what does that represent in lost revenue? So if there's a higher conversion rate in the first week, that would mean you would try to uh, upsell the customer, maybe offer them some incentives to renew in that first week. And I've seen companies like uh, GoDaddy, they used to do that a lot, they offer those uh, incentives and uh, uh, and then that became, uh, you know, becomes reasons to spend money because you got a discount, and uh, maybe you just go ahead and renew your your uh, subscription. And more companies are moving, I think, to the subscription model, so it becomes more like a utility. And uh, I I know that several years ago, that Microsoft and the news had talked about that. They, more like a, a software utility company where people were paying for subscriptions. 
<clears throat> so as new functions and features come out, then they're released and used by the consumer. But then each month there's a subscription uh, fee. So like on Azure, uh, you know, rather than buy a, a SQL server and install that on my local machine, I bought a, a, an Azure subscription and every month I pay $5. So that's about $60 a year. And, uh, you know, over time, over multiple years, maybe it would have made more sense to just go buy the SQL Server license and then I would have that on my local machine. And uh, I've, I've been uh, toying on that idea because the problem with the subscription is every month you pay for it whether you use it or not. And uh, I've been very heavy into data, data cap and so I've uh, set aside my Flutter and uh, SQL Server development and elected to elected to uh, 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 use uh, Azure. Well, you know, the march of the machines is occurring as uh, things are starting to automate. And what I start thinking about the automation is that, uh, um, you know, I was looking at some automation that was actually fairly complex where a, uh, a robot was trained on how to do um, computer board assembly. So it was putting in different... Uh, components on a motherboard and it had different uh, tool adapters that it could then uh, perform different uh, uh, procedures like putting in a board or uh, latching a piece of equip of component on so it picked up and moved a wire around and which latched it into place and as I kind of think about that process, um, it makes me believe that, uh, that computers and robots are, are gonna be more uh, capable of doing complex procedures and those routines will be um, uh, automated and, and uh, become, um, uh, used used um, on the, in factories. So, uh, yeah, do you, the question you know becomes: Do you uh, have uh, robots that uh, do uh, uh, cooking? Yes, but how would they? How would they? Well, would they do it? Well, you know they're going to have sensors on it, so they're going to know timing precision, a certain amount of precise time. But, you know, when you look at a standardized process, I, my friend was, uh, I was talking to him and he was saying, you know, that's one things that made McDonald's great is that they had a standardized automated process uh, where everything was done a certain way. And, uh, and so you had, uh, you know, you had, 
people who are cooking the hamburgers a certain way and you had assembly done a certain way and then they they removed the utensils they took out the utensil aspect of what they were doing and you know it was later that they gave maybe uh, plastic utensils but they were one of the first uh, companies to uh, take your hamburger wrap it in a kind of a wax paper and and uh, package it in a, a, a small cardboard box and so you know if you think about how restaurants have changed if, you know originally food was delivered on a plate and it was a lot like you would receive food uh, in a meal but then fast food came along and everything was put in cardboard boxes packaged up put in a bag and handed to them. Uh, so I remember well the first time I went to an In-N-Out Burger place they uh, uh, they didn't even use a bag they they had a kind of a, a cardboard tray and you know there you would order your hamburgers and then they would give you another cardboard tray with your french fries and then you had uh, drinks and then you had your hamburgers and they were just stacked uh, one one on top of the other uh, horizontally and and uh, that was a different way of presenting the food that I'd ever seen uh, up to that point I saw that you know in the 1980s So maybe in the future you have everything behind a glass wall and the robots are assembling your your food. It's getting the, your, you know, you have a kiosk and you talk to the kiosk and uh, place your order and it, you know, gives you a text feedback description of what you placed on the order and then the robot quickly assembles all the parts and you get your food. And so this, um, the artistry or the culinary touch is, is uh, lost, you know, in the sense that uh, there's no interpretation of what would be good or not good. And uh, everything is done precisely the same way every time. Ketchup to the onions to the mustard, everything is dispensed per, uh, on a certain proportion every time. And so, this uh, you know, the question is as well could you do the same? Could one machine do the same work that 20 people do? And, uh, and uh, it depends on the configuration, but the machine can be working very, very fast, uh, moving around. You wouldn't want to have a human being in there while the machine is working. Uh, and then, you know, when there's downtime, if you have to restock supplies, then there's, uh, you know, it could be automatic restocking, uh, where, you know, delivery of uh, products or, or 
inventory arrives and then you're you're placing that in uh, to those bins and those bins then are, are being extracted by the robot you know and the thing that's interesting is that the robot not only can do assembly but it can also be doing quality checks as it's going to so it can expect you know was the meat uh, is it the meat cooked properly does the hamburger look correct? Did it have the, you know, the lettuce, the tomato, the bun? Had it, you know, so there's some quality checks that could, could occur. Um, are the fries cold or hot? Uh, maybe it could detect even the moisture level to see if they're stale and throw out the stale fries. So there, there's a, a lot of aspects to automation that uh, can have benefits that might not be realized in the manual world of doing things. So there, there's advantages in quality. So the big thing now is automation to reduce jobs that are hazardous. Um, one that I, I saw was with a flying drone that paints, uses a high pressure paint line and it can fly very close to the building and it can spray the building with either paint or uh, fungicide or, or insecticides and so the machines can perform those level of precision. I have actually thought at one time using IOT to reduce uh, to be able to catch uh, Test. So if you you know if you had some sort of robot that could uh, capture the pest, then you know it could detect movement and identify through uh, visual recognition that it is a pest and then capture it. So uh, you know I think the world of Automation is really going to step up. We're going, we're going to see it. I, I was reading about how FedEx uh, has are in their pilot programs for drone delivery. And uh, one of the things about drone delivery that uh, is going to be a challenge is you know, navigation in the airspace. So, how will you control where you have? multiple carriers using drones to deliver products. Uh, how will you control the usage of that airspace? Will they be able to detect another drone or will you have air-to-air -air collision with drones that are possible? And then who's going to regulate all that? So if, uh, if the FAA regulates it, um, you know, will they have set up specialized control centers where they're monitoring the activity of the drones. So you would have to register your flight plan in with the uh, control center and then uh, you, you deliver the product and then would there be a fee attached to usage of that uh, navigation system. So yeah, the future is being built right now. I guarantee you that. 
and uh, they are doing tests uh, on drones, and drones are, are going to be used for delivery. Um, there was another company that used a drone where it was, uh, I believe, a German company, and they it um, had speeds between 75 to 100 miles an hour. It uh, almost looked like an RC plane, remote-controlled plane, uh, but then you can deliver medical supplies. So in the past, uh, medical supplies or sample, medical samples have been delivered by, by vehicle. Um, you have an employee assigned to, to make those vehicle runs and deliver those lab samples or medical supplies. Uh, with, uh, with the drones, you could, you could have high-speed delivery, so it could fly across the city really quickly, deliver, and then uh, fly back to its base. It could be all unmanned. Uh, possibly it could just, you know, have a computer that performs the navigation, or maybe you have a human being that's flying the drone like the military does with its war drones. But at some point, you know, that if you want to uh, automate everything, then you have to uh, give it goals and tasks, and then let it figure out how to accomplish those goals and tasks. So that uh, you get, uh, uh, you can scale. That you can have not just one delivery drone, but maybe you would have hundreds or thousands of drones. So instead of seeing flocks of birds in the air, maybe you'll see flocks of drones. And uh, somehow they've, they've got to be capable of avoiding air collision with birds so that they're flying through the air and there's a bird, you know, it doesn't hit the bird and cause uh, damage. So there'll be regulations on it, environmental regulations too. And they've been talking for a long time about using drones for delivery, like quadcopters to deliver your packages. And when you look at how your package arrives now, they just set it on the doorstep, you know, and uh, maybe ring the doorbell or, or they just set it on your doorstep. And um, that, that could be perfect for drone delivery. It just could fly to the, the address and then put the package on your doorstep and then fly off. So it's going to be a game changer and it will happen in the next 10 years. So the idea of uh, batch delivery is now going to be replaced by parallel delivery. In other words, there'll be lots of devices going in different directions, uh, performing one or two tasks, and, and doing those tasks uh, very reliably. So then there'll be, you know, technicians that are required to program the drones, and then there'll be technicians to repair the drones, and then, uh, you know, just like self-driving cars had problems, you know that drones will have problems too, where 
you know, maybe a drone runs into a building or, uh, you know, a drone has a malfunction and crashes on the ground or causes some sort of damage. So there have to be some uh, insurance on that and, uh, and then they'll have to fix those problems. But that's the cost of progress. So, you know, everything is moving forward quickly. Things are changing. Uh, jobs are already beginning to change. You know, uh, it's interesting with the era of 3D printing. 3D printing is now uh, re uh, displacing mold injection. And uh, so now you're, you're getting things 3D printed. And, and soon, uh, the 3D printing will be moving to alloys, metals. They can already do 3D printing of uh, parts, steel, copper. So a lot of those uh, uh, parts now are going to be 3D printed. And so those type of digital uh, projects are becoming more accessible. Companies are, are uh, taking big strides towards building scalable projects, scalable solutions. And then as, as companies show that they can do 3D printing, then smaller, co smaller companies will innovate and start to create 3D prints that the consumer wants. I know in China for a little while, they, uh, the big thing was to do uh, a 3D scan and then print, uh, print out a head bust of you or, or do a full body scan and do a, a print, a miniature print of yourself. And then that was, hasn't seemed to catch on in the U.S., but maybe, you know, it will for like $20 and 30 minutes of your time. It will do a, you know, you can do a hand scan of the, the person using LiDAR. Uh, and then do a, a 3D print of the person. You know, about a decade ago, I was watching... Uh, a 3D scan. The 3D scan technology was very expensive. I think it was a couple thousand, three thousand dollars or so. But it, it, it could uh, it could scan small models, and then uh, you could put it in a digital sculpting software, and then build your your digital model from the external scan. But today, I think that we can. There will be, uh, you can find on the market 3D scanners that are much cheaper. And I could see with the, the advancement of augmented reality that the 3D scan technology is going to greatly reduce and become more accessible. And so as a result of that accessibility, you have more digital data digital data that will uh, can be taken into the form of fabrication you can fabricate things from your 3d 3d scans and then as you fabricate those 3d scans uh, then you can build things so 
you know, your fab lab dream comes into effect. And then once you start building things, building tools, it provides work. You, know, you can do, uh, you can build a, a tool that uh, can do things. And, that, and that's power. Work equals power. And utility. Well, so I was talking to my daughter last night about uh, how AI could be used possibly in a business model where uh, you take, uh, let's say you, you want you to paint like the master. Okay, there's, a, there's software out there now that has learned how to recreate art that looks like a master. Like, for example, Rembrandt, or, you know, you could use the Dutch artist, or the French Impressionist, or the abstract, um, German abstraction painting, abstract painting. It could, so it learns the preferred colors that the masters like to use, particular masters like to use. And uh, I'm sure that it's very specialized right now because it's, uh, you know, they're trying to create a market for it, meaning that, you know, it doesn't have all the masters and maybe they have one or two masters with certain characteristics that uh, they train the computer on. And uh, then you, person sits down and they, it takes a picture of them and then the robot begins to mix paint and uh, selecting colors based on the palette that the master would use and the brush strokes and the, uh, the, the degree of paint, like maybe they want to do quick brush strokes with thick amounts of paint or, or in other cases they'll do small brush strokes with light amounts of paint. But it, it would do the paint mixing and, uh, and portrait painting. And the person doesn't necessarily have to, to sit there while the, the computer is working. The computer and robot are working. They, you know, they can just pay their money. Maybe they pay $300. And, uh, and the robot creates a masterpiece. And it's all in oil. So it's authentic oil painting done by a robot. You know, something that maybe would cost you 10000 more more dollars to have a professional artist perform that art you're, you can have a robot do it so you know that utility then again is what I'm talking about you know things that are non-accessible to the average person because you know of cost and also access, uh, uh, being able to to acquire an artist to perform that level of art uh now could be done through automation. So maybe art will experience a rapid expansion in the uh, production of of, uh, of art pieces that people enjoy. So maybe they enjoy, they have a favorite uh, photograph that they want now converted into an art, uh, oil painting, or maybe they want it uh, done in the French Impressionism. You know, they have a they want to capture light and movement, so they, you know, they have an idea. 
was talking to my son-in-law about that idea. He writes books, and it's like, you know, there's software now that's starting to read uh, text and build things. Microsoft has done this for quite some time where you describe a bird, and it morphs the bird to a certain type of bird and the colors and uh, shape. But it doesn't animate the bird uh, in like in a dream-like way. But what if computers could dream? That's an interesting proposition because that's what the iRobot scenario was: is can robots dream? But what if they could dream? In other words, what if they could uh, they could morph into particular actions so they could take the bird? study birds flights and then you know in the description it says the bird flew off into the eastern sunset so it it, it could create a sunset in the east and then it could interpret what that would look like and then it could uh, mimic the uh, take the bird that it, it's created its colors and then it could uh, move move the different parts like it could just learn how a bird's wings move and then based on that description of, of movement you can then take and move that uh, bird around and so you know you're talking huge numbers of cycles but as things are increasing exponentially imagination is the shortage so you take uh, content and create computer movie from your content so you take your book and the computer reads the book comprehends it and then begins to animate the different parts of the, the book including you know we've seen deep fakes how people can be talking and in one character and it's watching uh, the mouth movement eye gestures and it's creating it in another using the neural net and so it's doing facial recognition in real time, creating uh, creating the deep fake. And it's interesting because I was watching another uh, deep fake where they they got the emotional states really good. They focused on you know uh, trying to create tension in the facial lines that reflected the emotional state that the computer was observing. So now you could also add emotional state. So it's interesting that there'll be work in some of these aspects. I don't know if there'll be a software package that could combine it all. Like it would combine movement gestures, text reading, natural language processing, emotional interpretation. But the, the thing about the computers is that they are very big. They're extensions of the mind. And so... Um, you know, it is possible that to, to achieve that some of this level of sophistication, and perhaps it's done on the, all on the cloud, where you have a huge amount of resource that can be tapped into. But we're entering into an era of where creativity, digital creativity, is going to be in demand. And it already is in demand. Some uh, artists, I, you know, that do the large digital uh, imaging. And I was talking to my daughter again, and she was telling me that 
that not only can <coughs> it take a <coughs> digital image of and put it as a as art form, like maybe you're modeling thermodynamics or theory of relativity or um, some cosmological, astronomical event, uh, but it can also put you right in the middle of that digital experience in that simulation. So let's say you're you're uh, simulating water flow current. It can detect that you're where you're standing, and then it can. Uh, move your hand you could then it would have the same effect as if you were physically in the physical world moving over that so you have kind of this matrix experience where you know the the physical world is interacting with the digital and the digital is anticipating what that simulation interaction should be um, you know versus going the opposite direction where the digital world has some sort of, uh, let's say, some feedback system where <clears throat> it, it can it can create, uh, say, like it's uh, you have a, a face recognition on one part of the world, and on the other part of the world, uh, it creates uh, using uh, maybe rods. It creates the same face on a in a two in a three dimensional on a board. So you have the, the face up here and you could be moving your, you could say you move your hand and, and uh, all the pins go up and down and it moves the hand. So it's showing you that the, digi the physical can be translated the digital back into the physical. And, um, you know, these are old movies, but Lawnmower Man was kind of that way where they were, they were talking about that possibility. You know, it's so, so funny because we, we talk about the sci-fi movies and, and uh, you know, we think about, you know, how a lot of the things that we called back, you know, maybe 20 years ago, sci-fi was so futuristic, now are be done by college students as part of their, their learning. Like, you know, one of, just one course in Datacamp was on character recognition where... You know, that was the character recognition, handwriting recognition was uh, the work of PhD projects in the 80s, you know, and to get a device that could recognize uh, handwriting was a big deal, and a big breakthrough, you know, to be able to run it on a, a Mac, Mac and have had enough uh, computational cycles to be able to run the neural net to recognize the handwriting so that's why I'm saying is that I think that as computational increases the feats that the AI will be expected to do will also increase significantly well that's this week's thought recaps and uh, you know good talking with you and uh, continue and enjoy your Python programming. Look at that rolling averages. And uh, you can use uh, rolling with iLoke and DataFrame. And then you can plot it out. And uh, you could use uh, dot shift, and that'll has the same effect as a lag. It'll move you uh, back a row. And so enjoy uh, playing around with that and 
and see you out there on Stack Overflow.